Welcome to Homebound Veterans Season 4, Episode 16. I am Keith. And I'm Laura. Laura, we have done 16 episodes <laughs> this episode. You mean this season? I do mean this season. <laughs> that is why you are such an integral part of this podcast. <laughs> I mean, we can do 16 episodes in the 16th episode. That would be... <laughs> Like we're time traveling or something. <laughs> we might get more than two listeners. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> we go back in time and find, yeah, whatever. Hey, um, I, this episode is actually like, I love them all. I really do. They're like my kids. I love them all. Mm. Richard Gorling was a really cool person to interview. Yeah, Richard Gorling from Mindful Badge was amazing um not only does he practice this mindfulness kind of living uh, but he has done so through and because of some of the traumatic experiences that he's had in a professional setting and he wants to share that kind of healing um, through his organization mindful badge with others not only individuals but also communities of people what he's doing is he's teaching first responders how to be healthy inside out. And so when they come into a situation to a call, they're able to respond from a very healthy standpoint. They're able to deal with the community that they serve in a powerful way and not how we've seen necessarily, especially when it comes to policing. Uh, Mindful Badge is very, uh, what they're doing is very impactful. And he, he really spends some time talking about and creating an organization that helps train people on understanding that leading and experience change first starts with self. Everything else is really just a, a system you're trying to put in place that won't have a lasting or transformative impact unless you include yourself as a subject for change. And um, he does that through mindfulness training and coaching. Let's not spoil any more of this story. This is a great episode. Richard Gorling from Mindful Badge. Enjoy. So Richard, you know, the, the story of Mindful Badges is definitely what we want to focus on. And we're, we're happy that we get to talk to you about this. It's, it's certainly a timely, uh, opportunity for us to discuss um, what Mindful Badge is, what you're doing with Mindful Badge. But I, I think before we start on that part of the story, I think we can't, we'd be remiss if we didn't start with your story of service and how that led you to, to, to Mindful Badge and doing what you're doing now. Yeah. So my story of uh, military service and police service, uh, I think, you know, goes back to family roots. My father is a army combat veteran. My brother, Air Force combat veteran, um, and I chose to go into this weird service called the Coast Guard. Um, and um, you know, there's a, a drive to serve others uh, deeply rooted in the family. Um, and uh, you know, so it was kind of this expected thing that you know, go do something that serves others in some way. And uh, I was really intrigued by the mission really the, the multiple missions of the mm. U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and the other really fascinating thing is um, I'm, let's see, I'm 18, 19 years old uh, in my freshman year of college, and I did not know how to swim. And wow. so I went downtown Portland, Oregon to the recruiter, and I enlisted, delayed entry, and then I went to my community college to the swim team uh, coach and said, I need your help. <laughs> and to this day, I remember vividly stepping into the water, being terrified and just just sucking it up and mm. with a skilled coach and with, you know, I don't know, a little bit of uh, uh, determination became a swimmer where people now say, oh, you've been swimming your whole life. You must have swam competitively in high school and all that. Right. But uh, so part of joining the Coast Guard was just the, the challenge, like, well, gosh, I don't, I'm not comfortable around the water. And that's pretty much what I need to be. So that sounds like a challenge that I want to accept. So that may have been the primary driver uh, for my choosing the Coast Guard. And um, I spent four years in the reserve program um, at a small boat station in 
on the Oregon coast while he finished my college. And then uh, somehow, um, you know, the gods were good to me, and I got selected to attend officer candidate school and went through that. And then uh, my had a first underway assignment, served aboard a Coast Guard cutter, high endurance cutter, uh, out of San Pedro, California, thinking that I was going to have, you know, sun surfing and beach volleyball. And uh, <laughs> I ended up spending most of my time in Alaska, um, which was great. Um, you know, so there was a little bit of irony with all of that. Um, and I spent several years on active duty and uh, in the operational search and rescue law enforcement community and then in the training community. And ultimately, I left to pursue a career in law enforcement. And that career in law enforcement um, was deeply informed by the leadership culture of the Coast Guard, or at least my experience of the leadership culture in the Coast Guard, which was to always improve, which, you know, to, to, to be more skillful at the limited resources that we had to try to get more out of what we had. Yeah. And um, I was really fortunate as a young Coast Guard officer to be mentored under some senior officers who um, introduced me to the contrarian leadership philosophies. Not contrarian so much that you're a rebel and you're disruptive, but contrarian to really being willing to tell that, you know, that 05 and 06 who have a lot of responsibility that you disagree and mm -hmm. to articulate smartly how and why and then mm -hmm. to shut up and follow orders. But to always, you know, be challenging um, when it's appropriate, uh, how things are done. And um, so I brought that into police service, and, and there was a whole lot to challenge as a, as a police <laughs> officer and, and later as a police sergeant and later as a police lieutenant. How, how long did you serve uh, as a police officer, lieutenant? I spent, I spent 24 years in civilian policing, um, yeah, so I spent time as a police officer. I spent time as a uh, detective, as a sergeant of patrol, a sergeant of detectives, and then a lieutenant of patrol, lieutenant of detectives. Um, and I spent two years, my first two years out of the Coast Guard were working for a federal law enforcement agency as a criminal investigator. And as much as it was a great job, it was really boring. Hmm. So I... I, you know, I was kind of young and dumb, and I pursued the excitement over driving fast and, you know, getting in fights and all those sorts of things that attract young people to police work. Yeah. So how did this idea um, of Mindful Badge arise in, within you, and how did it come, come yeah. to you? Yeah, so, you know, I left active duty Coast Guard. I stayed in the reserve, and I think that, you know, let's just blame the Coast Guard for mindfulness and policing. Um, <laughs> I, I had a parallel career in the Coast Guard, which I think was a lifeline for me in the sense that it, it kept me skillful at seeing the world, um, seeing the world for, I, I guess, in a broader horizon as opposed to pol policing has a way of really narrowing your horizons. Yeah. And, and that's not a good or bad or right or wrong thing. It, it's a, in many cases, it's a survival thing. Hmm. Uh, but I lived this kind of parallel life of, you know, Coast Guard service and leadership roles and in operational stuff like search and rescue and intelligence and law enforcement. And it, I was constantly exposed to new ways of thinking about how things were getting done, particularly after 9-11. And in fact, I spent a couple of years on active duty after 9-11 uh, as one of many participants um, helping to stand up the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I wasn't drinking all of the Kool-Aid. Um, and again, not it's probably unfair to say it like that, but I think we can relate to it. Um, I diluted it and, and, you know, still did the work, but also there, I started to view a lot of things about policing that didn't resonate with my commitment when I raised my hand to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and everything that goes with that. Um, I, I started being attuned to, um, you know, to the systemic racism and to the, the oppression of marginalized people, um, to how we talked about, you know, uh, victims of domestic violence or how we talked about people suffering from addiction and homelessness and poverty. 
um, and how we didn't talk about race mm -hmm. and then sometimes how we did. Um, those things were really interesting to me. I, I realized that I came from a very strong social justice point of view, which for me is that's the constitution, that's the commitment I made. Um, and not to vilify, you know, not, not to make villains around what is, but to honor and respect much of where we came from, but also to look at, can we not get better at this? Right. You know, right. and not yeah. just to get rooted in defensiveness of this is who we are and we're the thin blue line. I, I just, I think that's really sad that all we can do is drape ourselves in, in, in the hijacked American flag with the thin blue line through it and say that you just don't understand us. Um, those days are over and, uh, you know, we need to evolve forward. And the other piece to that is the deep human suffering behind the badge. I started seeing with my own eyes and experiencing with my own body and mind trauma injury and how right. occupational stress right. and trauma shows up and how it's not, I mean, the institution of policing and the same goes with firefighting and corrections and so many other public safety institutions, we, we do not have an evidence-based leadership approach to occupational stress and trauma. And much of what we're doing is grasping at straws that are, it's uninformed, uneducated, poorly led grasping at straws to try to support the men and women in uniform. And I rejected that too. And uh, mm. I, I made friends and relationships with scientists and said, what do you know? What, what can I learn from you? And so I went to a deep science-informed approach to how, how do we support, how do we lead ourselves and each other in this climate of occupational stress and trauma, which is, is very broad. And um, ultimately, I explored different mind-body interventions because those things work. Mm -hmm. um, and this thing called mindfulness meditation kept coming up. And I kept resisting it, like, oh, man, I'm not going to the hippie rainbow, you know, unicorns, you know, hugs, bullshit. Like, okay, finally, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do this. And, <laughs> and it, it, it what, I did not have what I call like this, um, there was no religious experience, right? There was no, uh, <laughs> there's no great story behind this other than trial and error. You know, I, I took a number of mindfulness training courses and thought, okay, there's something here, but I didn't have any kind of transformational experience, you know, and uh, there's no rebirth story here. Right. It's just, okay, all right, let's keep exploring this. And I did, and ultimately partnered with some really bright people, some mindfulness teachers, and we built um, a model that we researched and found that training eight weeks of what we then called and call loosely now mindfulness-based resilience training can in fact transform the lives of police officers. Mm. It makes them less angry. It makes them less reactive. It makes them more compassionate for themselves and for others. Um, it reduces their cortisol levels. It um, improves their sleep management, improves their ability to be uncomfortable, said differently, makes them better at being in pain. That's pretty mm. badass, right? And mm. it also improves cognitive agility. And this is kind of where I'm exploring now is the ability to sharpen our sword, to, to improve our performance in just maybe a percentage point when it comes to taking in data and making mm -hmm. sense of data and making informed decisions. I mean, that's tactical stuff, right? That's the tactical piece of performance with our tradecraft, whether we're policing or firefighting or, you know, a medic or whatever it is we're doing. I mean, for, for, for also for a, whether we're a parent, right? I mean, all kinds of things. This, this is yeah. a, this is a health, a humanity and a performance based approach. Yeah. And that's what we're doing with mindfulness. It, it's funny because, you know, we're a, we're a podcast that focuses on the transition stories of veterans out of the military and into civilian life. And, and so some might listen to this podcast and say, well, I don't understand the correlation between mindfulness and policing and transition stories of veterans. But you, I know, you know, you and I have talked before that this is often a, a path 
Like you're not the only person who left the military and left the Coast Guard and went into policing, right? There are, this is a, a good pathway for a lot of veterans, sometimes an unhealthy pathway if they let it be. And this is why I think what you're doing is so important. What, what's some of the data that you've seen that, that might support this or, or, you know, from your experience, it supports um, the veteran transition and transition in a healthy way into public safety. Yeah, you know, the first thing I would say is that there's a lot of misunderstanding of the value that veterans bring to policing in America. Hmm. There's some fundamentally um, oversimplified and often insulting ways that um, that veterans are, are considered. You know, they're early on after after you know the global war on terrorism. Well, we're still there, but early on after you know 2001. 2003, 2005 area, we we were afraid of veterans. We were afraid of the boogeyman and completely unfounded because, frankly, we could point to a lot of non-veterans in law enforcement who perhaps we should have paid attention to. Correct. Um, for health and performance reasons. You know, and so we oversimplify um, the value. And I think that if... If a veteran wants to transition from the military into policing, obviously that's done with a lot of great consideration and a lot of learning about what the job is. But the, the key thing is that we bring our experience with us in any vocation. So we bring the experience of trauma and I'm not trying to create any drama around that experience of trauma. Because one of the things that we do with mindfulness training is we just, we take the air out of of this drama nonsense that we put around trauma we clearly just face occupational trauma injury you know that might be a diagnosis of ptsd it might be a diagnosis of clinical depression it might be a diagnosis of any number of things and sure. then we just work the issue right we work the problem and the problem might be that diagnosis the problem might be waking up day after day after day just feeling melancholy okay so we work the problem and we teach now it's police officers. I do some training with veterans in the military as well, but we teach people, okay, how do you recognize what's going on? How do you pay attention to what you're experiencing? And then what are you going to do about it? It's not, hey, pay attention to what you're experiencing, Keith and Laura, and let's, let's pity party ourselves and feel badly. No, that's, that's nonsense. Let's pay attention. Let's understand it's normal. Even if, even if it's an injury, it's still normal. There's nothing we're experiencing that some other human probably right at this very moment is, is experiencing, right? So sure. on some level, we're not special. Let's just deal with this. And we deal with it by integrated healthcare. We deal with it by psychotherapy. We deal with it by social connection, which is critically important to hold our tribes closely. We deal with it by meditation. We deal with it by movement of the body, right? And we can, we can drag that all the way down to all kinds of different fitness activities, CrossFit and, you know, rucks and all kinds of things. Um, we deal with it by positive cognitive practices like gratitude practice and intention setting and some other things. And so we have these actionable interventions that don't mean anything other than we're smart and we're working our issues, right? There's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing broken. We don't need fixing. We just move into these interventions skillfully. Right. And over time, we move towards recovery and healing and we're setting conditions for something we don't talk about much at all because we're too focused on the drama of trauma, we're setting conditions for post-traumatic growth. Mm. Which is, we, 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 we can't guarantee that's gonna happen, but we're certainly capable of emerging with greater strength than when we started. And we're still gonna have injuries, maybe actual or maybe otherwise, right? We're still gonna hold those scars, but those scars make us stronger. I have a question. How are you convincing people that don't recognize, recognize that these things will, would be helpful for their healing? How do you convince them that it is? You know, what's interesting is I just talked to them. Mm. I mean, you know, I have part of my presentation when I give to police and fire service leaders is, is what I call the landscape of suffering. You know, the data speaks for itself. Mm. Let's just talk about public safety. You know, the data tells us that there is an epidemic mm -hmm. of trauma injury slash human suffering yeah. 
within the ranks of public safety in America. And it is not getting better. It manifests at an extreme as, as suicide. It manifests as, you know, um, uh, retirements, medical retirements. It manifests in also really subtle but real ways of poor performance, right? Um, this, this notion of presenteeism is fascinating to me. We all know what absenteeism is. But presenteeism, you know, in, in policing we call it like the blue flu. You show up to work and you just do the minimum <laughs> amount of work necessary just not to get fired, right? And, and you don't do that because you show up because you, you've woken up that day and set your intention to, to be a sloth. You right. do that because you just don't have it anymore. You don't mm -hmm. have the, the energy, the motivation, the inspiration for so many reasons. Yeah. And, of course, then along with that, what generally accompanies that is some really negative self feelings, right? This judgment and then we start circling in these negative patterns of, of how we see ourselves. And then we start maladapting with even more behaviors that do not serve us well. Mm -hmm. And notice I'm not saying good or bad because that's just, that's nonsense. This isn't about good or bad or right or wrong. It's the question is, does this serve me well? Mm -hmm. like, does this habit of drinking, you know, a six pack a night of beer serve me well? Mm -hmm. Right. Does this habit of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, does it serve me well? Right. And can we explore that? Not can we shame ourselves and blame ourselves and guilt ourselves, but can we just explore like, God, what is that like? And next cigarette I have, if I'm exploring cigarettes, nicotine habits, can I just explore what is, what is, what is it about this that I'm enjoying right now? Hmm. What is it, what is it that I need hmm. in this moment of inhaling this smoke, right? Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, just an example, there's many ways to approach that, but with mindfulness, we just simply wake up to what am I experiencing right now? Mm -hmm. What do I need? Mm -hmm. hmm. What are the thoughts in my head that I'm, that I'm telling about me right now? And part of what we're doing is we're transforming the inner critic, which we all have, we kind of default to. We're retraining the inner narrative, the story we tell about ourselves to ourselves, mm -hmm. reframing that to a more positive, a more compassionate inner narrative, which I like to refer to as the inner coach. Yeah. Hmm. It, how did how did you repattern what you were telling yourself in transitioning out of the military and into civilian sector? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, I think just listening, right? really honest, kind of honest, badass paying attention hmm. to the things that we often ignore. And when I, you know, when I'm taking that run or that walk with the dog or that swim or whatever, you know, I was doing, just really shutting off the music, pulling out the headphones and just paying attention to how does my body feel? Okay, that's interesting. What am I thinking about? And what is the narrative that I'm spinning? And it all starts with paying attention. And it's really uncomfortable. I mean, the reality is, is that when you take high-performing people who are used to being in crisis and you ask them to sit still and just notice their thoughts, they go a little kind of agitated, Yeah. right? We get pissed off. I mean, I remember yeah. how angry I was the first time I did a half-day meditation training Whoa. where we couldn't talk. <laughs> Well, like, you know, yeah. you want to get up and punch the instructor in the <laughs> face, right? It's like, ah, you know, but, but now what I'm, how I reframe that because the meditation teacher didn't know how to speak to people like me is, hey, y'all, you're going to get good at being uncomfortable. You're already good at being uncomfortable. So come on, prove to me, prove to yourself that you really are a badass. Come sit on this funky ass meditation cushion and just sit here for 15 minutes. Yeah. And I'm going to teach you how to pay attention to what you're experiencing, and you will not like it. I but love it. When's the last? Oh. Yeah. I just I love that you're putting a label on that as badass. It is because it's different yeah. than what most people think. But I agree. Well, I will tell you that um, you know there, there's something in the research world that that we call trait mindfulness, which means that some people are just wired to be attentive. They're wired to pay attention. They're wired to work with the narrative. You know, they're wired to downregulate. Um, and most of those people end up in some kind of unique, 
high, ultra elite, high performing world. And um, so for those folks, they're all like, yeah, what's the big deal? You know, um, but for the rest of us who live kind of, as we jokingly say, in the mere mortal world, we're still high performers. We're still exceptional people. Yet we struggle with these ideas that, you know, somehow we don't have to do the hard work mm. to maintain or to grow. Mm. And the next arena for health and human performance enhancement is this thing right here. Mm. Yeah. So at, good. At, at, yeah. Richard, I would, um, I'm very curious on what your, what your thought is on the fact that there's a direct correlation or, or a logistical and a, and a um, like it makes sense for a combat veteran or even somebody who hasn't been in combat, but they're used to carrying a weapon. They're used to be mm. being in intense environments and handling it. Um, and it, and it, it's a correlation for, okay, I can go into, let's, let's just say policing. We'll stick with policing, for example. And that makes sense, right? That's something that I'm, it's an environment I'm familiar with. I'm used to carrying a weapon. I'm used to being in a situation where I need to take charge and control the situation. Um, but I think there's, there's a paradigm shift that it's, it's slight. It, it, it could be slight. It could be large. Um, it's so different policing our communities versus policing the streets of Baghdad or, or a, yeah. a combat environment. And, and how do you, through Mindful Vag, how are you able to reach those E4s, those E5s who are, who are leaving Afghanistan and walking into police departments and saying, okay, this is a perfect job for me? You know, I think the common denominator is a, a warrior humanitarian ethos. Hmm. That's the common denominator. Hmm. Everything else is different. Now, I will say this, that there are some Army Special Forces teams who've gone in to certain urban areas in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and literally have kind of rewritten approaches to policing in America in violent parts of the community. Wow. And I think in some ways, those SF professionals are more skilled than most cops. Okay. Wow. So I, I do want to say it gets really muddy very quickly, mm. but generally speaking, our the approach our Marines and soldiers take in warfare, um, particularly in this one that we're in now, has no comparison to policing in America, um, except for the ethos, except for I am here in service to the greater good, right? And, you know, the weapon systems are generally different. The, 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 the rules of engagement are different. Um, the, also the, the way that we do risk assessments, operational tactical risk mm -hmm. assessments is different. Um, well, it, sometimes, not always. I mean, there, again, there are some really interesting things we have learned in this global war on terrorism that like we have learned from in policing. We've learned from some of these door to door military operations that have happened in Iraq and Afghanistan because, right. you know, it's that classic, um, the, the social intelligence and the humanitarianism of the warrior who moves through those communities in war and is able to deliver medical care and medicine and joy to children. And then seconds later, you know, deliver violence to protect the mission, right? To right. protect the people, to serve the greater good. So again, right. it gets kind of muddy. Um, but I would say this is that if, if the veteran is looking to policing in order to stay with what's comfortable, uh, it's, it's a likely a critical mistake. It's, it's not, it's not a motivation or it's not a logical, well-educated pathway. If the veteran is looking for how else can I serve others and, and do I, do I perform well under stress? You know, can I lead myself? Well, um, can I work as a team, but also independently? Can I right. handle complex situations? You know, that there is no simple answer to then. And do I enjoy that sort of thing? Right. Mm -hmm. Then yes, rock on. Then policing mm -hmm. is a fantastic career opportunity for the veteran. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are many veterans who, frankly, are 
they represent like the new generation law enforcement officer. Mm. They're smart. They're well experienced. Mm. They're educated both formally and informally. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll, we need those folks in, in policing yeah. in America. But yeah. we also need veterans who are courageous enough to say, I see, I see what is. And I'm not sure this is, I'm not sure this is the best thing, right? Because what we try to do, and I've seen this so many times, we take in really bright, often combat veterans, we bring them into policing, and they, at 25 years old, they have more wisdom than the 35-year-old police lieutenant. They just do. Um, and then we try to shape them into what we want them to be, rather than to allow them mm -hmm. to inform and lead mm -hmm. up the chain of command, mm -hmm. lead laterally, and help create the new generation of policing. Um, some agencies have grown through those those growing pains, but I, I'm not convinced most have. Uh, but again, this comes back to veterans have a lot to offer, and and veterans from every service. You know, there's all kinds of specialties that that veterans that that they do in the work of of the U.S. military, and there's a place for that intelligence and capability and talent and um, what I've seen often is that a lot of these vets come in here and they realize really quickly that mm, y'all need to change some things. And right, it's hard right. for them to respect. It's hard for them to respect the organization because they might have been an E4 in the Army, E5 in the Army. And even though it's a huge machine, the U.S. Army, they had a role and, and things made sense. And of course, there's lots that didn't make sense. Right. Of course. Sure. Um, but then they come into policing and they're treated like. Like the, I think they're often disrespected as a, as the FNG, which there's a place for some of that, but we miss the wisdom, and and there's all kinds of ego reasons for that because the policing is one of the, one of the just deepest reservoirs of dysregulated ego that you'll ever find in, in any institution. <laughs> well, it's an interesting balance between you know often the veteran leaves. The military environment they want to assimilate into their new their new environment right and and become like their new their new uh tribe um but in that assimilation like you're saying they they lose some of the skill sets that they've learned in their experience in the military that need to translate over uh into that into that new space and it's about like you're saying because because you i i became a fireman as i was a lieutenant commander in the reserves and I was the FNG. And if I came in there like I was a lieutenant commander, I was going to get put in my place very quickly. And it wouldn't have been a fun experience. So there is there is a balance that needs to be maintained. Would you would you agree? Yeah. So there's a place to have rites of passage. I absolutely believe that. Mm. I mean, I think those rites of passage where mm. you have to serve your time as the FNG and, you know, whatever that looks like, there's there's some you know, mild hazing that goes along with that, whatever, you know, I just got in trouble by a lot of people by saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's important because, because there's entryways into the tribe. And right. then at some right. point, like there needs to be somebody that looks at, and, okay, we're going to treat Keith this way right now. We're going to, we're going to sort of muscle him up and get him dialed in, but let's not forget what he brings to the table. Mm. Like, you know, as soon as all this stuff's over, we need to make sure that we're taking advantage of the expertise that he brings. You know, sure. so when we're doing aviation operations, let's let's get him dialed into that. When we're doing, you know, when we're using his areas of expertise, let's make sure that we develop him in context to what we're doing here. And, you know, and let's face it, you know, you come in with any kind of operational expertise as, as the FNG, as the new guy, um, there's a potential that you're threatening others. And again, you know, I, I say this, I say this to police chiefs, you know, I, I sit in their conference rooms if I'm privileged to have a conversation with them in person these days. And I, I, I say that, you know, what I've learned in research and practice over the last three decades is that dysregulated, the key is dysregulated. Ego, anger, and fear are the wow. primary, three primary most destructive forces in our operational organizations. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that ego, like we need ego. We need yep. to have it. We need fear. Fear is an ally. We need it. Yep. We need anger. The problem is we dysregulate because we we live in states of reactivity. 
neurophysiological reactivity. And when we experience those things, we immediately move to reactive behaviors that don't serve us well. Yeah. Yeah. So powerfully stated. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the mindfulness is the part that helps those reaction pieces be a little more intuitive, uh, intentional, and not so violent? Well, they may be violent, Laura, depending on the okay. situation, right? Like, yeah. like there's, there's a place for mindful violence. Yeah. Um, let's hope it's rare. But so mindfulness is a skill. It is a skill at training attention, three different kinds of attention and compassion, which is really interesting. And mm -hmm. these two arenas of skills are really the gateway to enhanced human performance. And we move through the space of health, we move through the space of humanity, and we, and we enhance performance. Um, so what we're doing is we're embodying these skills. This isn't something like, oh, let me get the mindfulness out of the med kit, you know. Mm -hmm. um, this is, I'm embodying, mm -hmm. right, these skills. Mm -hmm. And these skills live in my body. Mm -hmm. And they're always there. And so when I'm in a conversation, you know, if I'm a police officer, I'm in a conversation with my sergeant, my sergeant pisses me off, which is not an uncommon phenomenon. Um, I can regulate that. I can go, oh, I'm really pissed right now. In my head, I can say this to myself, right? I can be like, oh, wow. You know, she really made me angry. And I can just not be reactive. And... And I can also conform, right? So I can, I can, in my anger that's regulated, I can follow her order, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I can also later, I can check all the judgment that might emerge about my boss. I can check all that stuff and put it in its appropriate space, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what I don't do is I don't go to my buddy and, you know, shit talk my boss. Mm-hmm. Because that does not serve me well, and it doesn't serve her well, doesn't serve any of us well, doesn't serve the mission well, right? Um, and I can also, here's the courageous part of leadership of self and others, is I can go visit with my boss and say, hey, can we talk about that? Yeah. You know? Um, like, how weird is that in public safety <laughs> to hear, you know, to hear someone just going to someone saying, man, you really lit me up. And, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of that is just my own stuff. Uh, but damn, it just doesn't feel good. Yeah. Right. So and just to maybe, work through it. Maybe my question then violent wasn't the answer. It wasn't the word. The right word I'm hearing is destructive. Destructive. Right. Like, like not being yeah. reactionary that leads to destructive means for others or myself. Yes, Laura, that's absolutely right. And then to put, let's, let's talk violence for a moment. You know, we live in a world where people do terrible things to each other. Mm -hmm. And part of the role of a police officer and sometimes part of the role of other people who aren't cops yep. is to intervene. And so my role with mindfulness, which, which makes for an uncomfortable conversation in, in, in both sort of the left and right <laughs> circles of, of politics, my, goal, my role with, or my goal with mindfulness is to train police officers to be more skillful at using force. Hmm. And so what does that mean? It means it means waking up to the lawful but awful kinds of force that we often use that we just simply don't need to because they're dysregulated anger or you know dehumanizing people or whatever. And and when I need to use force, I'm more skillful because it's not out of a dysregulated fear or anger or ego. It's really an act of compassion. Hmm. And that's a fun conversation to have that we don't have enough time to unpack that. But uh, yeah, I want cops to take hmm. skillful right action hmm. when they need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Richard, we may have already covered this content. If we did, you can just say we've we've covered it. But I'm curious then, what advice would you give the transitioning veteran? It could be all ranks, right? It doesn't have to be, I alluded to, an E4 or E5 transition in policing. But, I mean, obviously everybody, um, all ranks can and, and do that. So what advice would you give that transitioning service member who wants to get into policing um, 
before they actually get into that environment, what, what would you tell them? Hmm. Very simply, do your own work. Hmm. So work your trauma, hmm. uh, whether that's big capital T, bold, highlighted trauma, or just run-of-the-mill life's trauma. Work your trauma. Um, and, and that means, you know, having a medical visit with your doc, right? That means... Um, yeah, it means finding a mental health clinician just to have some conversation about, you know, you want to go into this profession as strong and stable as possible. And if you've got ghosts in your closet that are called trauma injury, um, go to the closet, open the door, tell them to fuck off and get in there and work the issue. Hmm. I love that. That's true. How do you start that? What would you be step one recommendation? You know, um, train in mindfulness, make an appointment with your doctor, make an appointment with your mental health clinician. Uh, I mean, those, those things are really simple, right? There are, um, you can go to Insight Timer, which is a free app. Um, John McCaskill is on there. John McCaskill runs, a, or he, he's, he's part of an organization called Veterans Path, and John's a retired Navy SEAL. Um, and he's doing mindfulness for veterans and military and John's fantastic. Um, you know, it, the epitome of the warrior training mindfulness. Yeah. You can find me on, on insight timer. You can go to my website, mindful badge. There's some guided meditations there. Any community you're in, in the United States and, and abroad, even you're going to find mindfulness teachers, just go explore and be willing to get uncomfortable and see what this mindfulness thing is all about. Maybe dive into some yoga um, and add it to your routine. You know, if you regularly go to the MMA gym, you know, mix in some meditation, talk to your teacher, your martial arts teacher, because they all do this stuff. Mm. They, yep. they just probably don't talk about it. You yeah. know, say, hey, can we do a meditation practice? You know, um, your teachers are everywhere. Be a student. Richard, is it possible? I don't know about your situation. I know when, when I was applying for the fire department and, and people that come through and do mock oral interviews with us, everyone has this idealistic view of how they're going to do the job. And they're going to come in and be the, be the hero and save people, and they're doing it for the betterment of the communities that they serve. Is it possible to maintain, and that's sometimes too idealistic, but is it possible to maintain an optimistic viewpoint of the job, especially in the public safety sector throughout a career? I believe it is. I, I don't believe it's possible unless we integrate some contemplative mind-body practices. Mm. And, you know, that that could come from people who have a faith practice and they integrate that into their life. I don't want to yeah. discount that. But from an evidence based scientific standpoint, we need to train skills in humanity. They will erode if we're not training skills. We can't just simply show up to work day in and day out and expect that we're going to have that positive outlook. You cannot will yourself to be positive. Hmm. I mean, we know this, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, people who are in depression would love to will themselves out of depression, but it doesn't work like that, right? There's yeah. so much physiologically going on. So um, train the skills and train the humanity. So train compassion, train attention, mm -hmm. train humanity, and, and notice how we're othering people. And this is one of the first things we go to in maladaptive social behavior in public safety as we start othering people. Oh, there's another junkie, there's another yeah. homeless person, there's another there's another idiot who locked their, you know, car locked their baby in the car. <laughs> you know, there's another fill in the blank dumbass yep. human being yep. and and I'm insulted that I have to go serve them. I mean, that's our yep. attitude. And, yeah. and and we don't wake up going I'm going to be an asshole today. We wake up going, okay, this is a tough job and how do I talk myself into mm. making sense of it? And the truth is, what part of what we're teaching in mindfulness is, you know, there's no sense to be made. Hmm. There's no sense to be made for, you know, why that terrible thing just happened to an innocent child. Why that child lost, there's no sense to be made. So stop trying to make sense of it and learn how to be a witness to human suffering and to be skillful in some kind of intervention that's part of your tradecraft. And then learn how to process that in your body, your mind, your heart and move forward so good. seeking strength. That is such a powerful so um, 
explanation of the process because as a first responder, you are going to be exposed to suffering and to tragedy tragedy and um and then i think the key component to that is obviously you have to be skilled at your craft to handle the emergency but it's the post post traumatic post incident uh process that often gets ignored we we compartmentalize and we move on to the next call and and you can compartmentalize for a period of time until it it doesn't work yeah, those containers break open and they break yeah. open at the most inconvenient times. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. you know, and, and they make us sick. You know, when mm. we stuff trauma in, in you know, we, I love the term compartmentalize. It's the greatest lie we tell ourselves. But when we when we do what we think <laughs> is compartmentalizing, we're contributing to the inflammation of our body. We're contributing to all kinds of disease, to epigenetics start, excite, you know, making, you know, cancers that I might not have had until I'm 70. I start getting when I'm 40. Um, I mean, it's. And all this is just there's so much science here that should just make us go, oh, my God, we have a We need a radical change in how we look at things. And I would say even further that. Policing and and firefighting, the institutions, we have it wrong. The way that we train around trauma, the way we have conversations around trauma does not serve us well. Yet we're so egotistically and organizationally attached to it. We seem to struggle to let it go. Wow. We need to shift towards a growth mindset. So, for example, what we often train new cops, new firefighters is that we'll say, you know, trauma happens to you. Armor up. Be a badass. And if you aren't badass enough, we have some people over here to help you and fix you. Mm. That's that's basically our message. And yeah. and you wonder why we drink like, well, right. If that's the message, then the, the message that's grounded in science and wisdom and badass warrior ethos is different and it is this I have chosen this profession I know damn well I'm stepping into human suffering I will be impacted by trauma but it's something I experience it's not something that happens to me I have agency because I chose to be here in service to others and I will move through it skillfully I'll perform through the crisis and I will take actions after the crisis to move towards recovery and healing and growth Hmm. Richard, I, I think honestly, I have just one more question that because I, uh, that was very powerful. Um, I, what advice? I and you already gave step one is is go talk to a counselor or or a medical professional. Um, what would be another two or three steps that a transitioning veteran, transition service member can do to transition in a healthy way, regardless if they go into public safety? Yeah. Um, if you can find a coach, you know, a professional coach, you know, which is sort of a kind mm. of a, a psychotherapist light sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Find a coach that you can talk through about, hey, what do I want to do when I grow up? Right. Um, they can you can do some assessments with a coach. You can set goals with a coach. You can they can hold you accountable. But find someone that is independent from your good friend, from your spouse, you know, yeah. because that never works well. Um, we seek coaching from our, our, our partners. And, and again, there's some of that that's good, but it doesn't work out so well. But find a coach. And, and there's I know there's coaches for transitioning service members, and that looks like different kinds of programs the military has. But if you get out in the open market, um, you know, spend a few hundred bucks for two or three sessions with a coach. And, you know, that may really help solidify what you want to do. And do your homework. Remain a student, right? Remain that mm -hmm. trained observer of yourself and the world around you. So yeah. you have a sense of, you know, what you want. And and dream, you know. Mm -hmm. Dream big. Mm -hmm. where, where do you want to be in 10 years? Mm -hmm. Right? Not yeah. like what, what you want to own, what kind of car do you want to drive. That's all, that's all just nonsense. But who do you want to be mm -hmm. in 10 years? And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you can sort of vector your way into that future. And there's no one path, right? There's no one path. Yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you. Yeah, Richard, thank you so much. This was, uh, you and I got to talk before and I appreciated our conversation then. I definitely appreciate this conversation uh, today. Is there anything else before we close? Or Laura, did you have another question? I was just going to say that I, Thank you that you are serving a really important purpose for our vet communities, our service members, 
firefighters and police, but more importantly, the global community who these individuals are serving, serving. And I am humbled and grateful for your passion and your knowledge that you're bringing forward. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Laura. No, that's great. Um, no, it's great. It's great to connect. It's great to have a voice that, you know, I can maybe say some helpful things and we can get that in front of people. Um, you know, it's funny. There's so much, there's so much that is that veterans transitioning out of the service are exposed to that. I think they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, a lot of the knowledge they get is sort of that Dr. Seuss sort of oversimplistic, you know, and it's just not helpful, you know, and I think we just need to be, we need to be honest with them and say, yeah, it's just really yeah. hard. And, um, yeah, do the hard work cause it'll pay off. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for what yeah, you're doing. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to you both. Thanks to Richard for spending time with us and with you sharing his story uh, about service uh, as a police officer in the Coast Guard and now with Mindful Badge. Okay, I want to finish with this one quote called In Search of the Warrior Spirit by Richard Trazi Heckler. Instead of panicking or returning to business as usual, commit to grounded compassion, pragmatic wisdom, and skillful action. Let awareness be your weapon. Be there for those who have suffered more than we have. Step beyond yourself and be of use to someone. Be courage in uncertainty and love in chaos. Wow. Well, keep up the great work, Richard. We hope you enjoyed this episode, season four, episode 16. We've got more to come. As always, thanks to Parallel Stereo for the music that you get to listen to right now. Find them on Spotify, Parallel Stereo. Go to our website, homeboundveteran.com, for more information on what we're doing. And that's pretty much it, because I'm not on social media anymore. So, you know, there you go. We do have a social media page, but <laughs> we do. no one's mining it. <laughs> no one is. Maybe I should, because someone may have hacked into it. Okay, that's it. I'm checking it out. If you've hacked it, you're going down. <laughs> I do keep up with our LinkedIn page and Facebook, so you can follow those. Hey, that's it for now. Until next time, I am Keith. I'm Laura. Be well. And own your journey. <laughs>